Good morning. 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 What? How are you doing this morning? They're coming. The computer is thinking. <laughs> well, hum along until we see this morning so if you are a child in the room and would like to come forward and get an instrument if you are an adult in the room you can stand we're gonna clap and get a little excited this morning all right pick and go pick an instrument go
That is the song that we sang at Seneca Lake when I had my, an, an encounter with God wherein I was telling God kind of repeatedly saying, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, whatever you want me to do, just tell me and I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, just tell me and I do it. And uh, after I said that, I don't know, several times, he said back to me audibly in my head, I think, uh, but it was audibly, he said, um, you say that, but you don't do it. And I was like, no, no, that's not true. I do everything you tell me to do, I do. And he began to give me images flashing in my head of times, and I stopped counting at 13, and I don't know, there may have been 20 or 30, and when I, little things mostly, but, you know, with God, when God tells you to do something, it's not really little, and, um, and I, didn't, I hadn't been doing them. I hadn't been doing what God told me to do. And from that moment on, I swore I would always do, whenever the Lord spoke to me and I was sure it was Him, I would always do exactly what He has told me to do. And I would say, I have failed in that a number of times since then, but I think a much smaller number of times than I would have had I not had that experience. I don't know that that's any consolation. It's like making an excuse almost, and I don't mean to do that. Um, but in writing this message that I'm writing today, the reason I tell you that story, and I didn't know even that we were going to sing that song, but the reason I tell you that story, the story is because in writing this message, I, I ran into myself. I literally had a full body collision as if we were playing softball and nobody said I got it and slam and down on the ground I went with myself. Because it's so easy sometimes for me to see the scripture in such black and white. It says this, this is what it means, and that's that. And I needed to get that part of me out of the way, even though that's true, that's all true, there's nothing wrong with that, I had to get that part of me out of the way because there was a deeper, bigger picture, a more important thing that God was showing me in the verses. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing because when we read the first verse, you're going to go, oh yeah, that's a point blank command there, it's very simple, and it is a command and it does need to be followed, it is a, a teaching of God, it does need to be followed, but I want you to see that it, tied with the other verses that it is with today as we read them, are are saying something that is far more um, worthy of being followed, maybe, far more far-reaching than what if you just do that. Okay, if you just take them one at a time and go, oh, that's something I need to do, you're, you're really missing out. Okay, so go with me then as we go on this journey to kind of lace these things together and see what that deeper teaching is that it all makes sense. Okay, try to do that with me today. I, I really had to get out of my own way, so I, I feel sorry for you that you're getting it abruptly but I think we can do it, uh, and I'll try to help you, okay? So, we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe you'll give me a little hoot, a holler, amen, as we go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is God's word from here on out. You know what? It really don't matter too much if I get it exactly right, because it's going to be God's word, and you're going to listen to what he is saying. That is the goal, okay? And we're going to begin in verse 5. We left off with verse 4 last week, and it is 22.5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So simply put, as I said, a very direct statement about men dressing as women or women dressing as men. And basically, it ends the verse, he says, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. I want you to notice that phrase, the Lord your God there. Don't miss it. It is a formula that God uses to make a certain thing very clear all throughout Scripture. Okay? It is that we belong to God, and essentially He belongs to us. Now, you can't own God. No one can. 
God was around before anything existed, so nothing that's in creation has any control over God. That's magic, M-A-G-I-K, the religion. That's sorcery. That is an attempt to force God to do something that you want him to do. It is a sin against God in the highest order, and he who ever practiced such a thing will never inherit the kingdom of God. But, that being said, here is the phrase that he is the Lord our God, as if we owned him. Okay? Bear that in mind, and we'll come back to it. Verse 6 then says, If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. So you're walking along, and there is a, a, a bird nesting on the ground. It could be a ground fowl. probably would be if it's nesting on the ground. It could be a low-flying fowl. It's probably nesting in a tree. And you see the nest. And in the nest is eggs or baby chicks. All right? And the mother is there, and if it's baby chicks, she try to protect her young. Uh, if it's eggs, she tries to stay on her eggs because they need to stay warm, right? And so it's not that hard if you come upon a nest to potentially take the eggs and the babies with the mother and to take both, all right? And someone might say, well, I like eggs, but I also like chicken, right? Or I like eggs, but I also like pheasants. So I can eat the mother, there's a meal today, and I can eat the eggs tomorrow for breakfast, right? And so we might go, here's my opportunity to take the whole mess, and God says, when it's your opportunity to take the whole mess, don't do it. That's what it says in his word. Don't do it. So though you've come along and you have this opportunity to get that extra advantage, don't do it. Verse 7 says, you shall certainly let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. And I submit to you that it is both, without getting too deeply into this part of it, it is both the taking of the young that prolongs their days, because now they can eat, right? Or the eggs, either way, you can eat and you're sustained, you're providentially provided for, because you didn't plant eggs there, right? You just happened to find them. So you're providentially provided for. But also the leaving of the mother, not taking the mother, also is the prolonging of your days. Now simply put, just taking it on the surface, that prolongs your days because she's going to lay eggs again. Right? So then you can come and take the eggs again if you find that same fowl. So that's simply put. But there's something deeper there. The not taking the mother when you have the opportunity to take the mother with the young somehow prolongs your days more substantially than simply maybe... Because finding that bird again may not be that easy. Right? You, if you take her young from that, there's a good chance the nest will smell like you or be violent. You, you can do it if you're careful, maybe. And she may lay young in the same nest again, but she could lay young somewhere else. If it's a migratory bird, they could, because if it's in a tree, it might well be, fly off somewhere else and come and make a nest somewhere else, and you may not find the nest. So you may not get to take, it's not as simple as if I leave the mother, I'll get to take the young again later. There's something more to it than that. Okay? Now we're going on. Verse 8. When you build a house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. So in other words, you're going to build a wall and traditionally these were two-foot walls around the roof of your house. They had flat, the flat roofs and they did, spent a lot of time on the roof. Right? Their roof was kind of like their patio. Often it was like their kitchen. Sometimes it was like their bathroom right? because they had a house and the extra space is on top. And unless you're in the rainy season, there's no reason you can't be out there. It's just, it's nice, it might be nicer out there on the roof of your house than it is inside your house. So you use their roofs a lot. So you have company over, people go on your roof, people do things on your roof, your guests are on your roof like that. And you build this wall around the outside, it's two feet high. It's less likely someone's going to fall off your roof, right? But I submit to you, it's not just that it's less likely someone's going to fall off your roof that keeps the blood guiltiness off your house. 
right? Because you built that parapet, and what if nobody ever would have fallen off your roof? It's kind of like an insurance policy, not an insurance policy to stop somebody from falling off your roof. What it actually said was that you would not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls off of it. So saying we're going to build this wall to keep people falling off of it, that's good, and you should, and it's an expense. You're putting yourself out to protect somebody who's on your roof. But on top of that, you will not be guilty if they do fall off of it if you've built that wall. See, there's something more there. In every one of these verses, there's something more that's being pointed at. We'll go a little further. We're almost done. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled. So now you can't have a vineyard that grows grapes, for example, and also apples. You can't have a part of your vineyard that grows uh, fruit and a part that grows grain. You can't put two products growing in your vineyard. Scientists will tell you, doctors will tell you, farmers will tell you that probably your vineyard is going to be the appropriate kind of soil for one kind of crop, and your best chance is to grow whatever it's good for anyway. Grapes, for example, grow in rocky soil. They grow in uh, soil that the water passes through kind of quickly, right? And so you'll see those in steps on the sides of mountains, vineyards, and like the hilly country often have vineyards, right? And if you grapes and go out in California, hill country, that's what they grow, right? So there might be appropriate products to grow there, but I submit to you it's not just that it's an appropriate, he's saying find the appropriate product to grow, not just that is something more because he says if you do grow two products all the product will be defiled so if you have land that is appropriate for grapes right and you grow grapes good for you yeah you grew grapes but if you have land that's appropriate for grapes and you grow grapes and also you take a patch of it you grow some grain because you want to be able to make bread let's say right the grapes, which are growing in land that's appropriate for them and has no reason to have any problem whatsoever, will now be defiled because you also grew another crop there that doesn't even draw the same nutrients or what are off the ground. So there's something more, it's applying something more here than just don't mix the two types of seed on the, two, on the same ground. There's a, there's a thing that it's saying, a reason why if I grow two different types of crops on my same ground, that both will become defiled. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. So they got this yoke, it's too wide. They put an ox on one side and a donkey on the other. They don't, don't fit the same. They might shape a little. They might not pay, pull with the same strength. But if you've got two animals and you've got a double wide yoke and that's all you got, you can say, well, I put the one side on the ox and the other side is just going to hang there. Right? Which, by the way, you can do that. If it's properly attached, you can get away with that. But why not put the donkey over there? That way, the ox and the donkey are both pulling. It's easier on both. It's unlevel. It's not the same strength. There will be problems, but I can, I can overcome those problems by constant control. Right? It'll work out. He says, no, don't do that. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And I submit to you, the reason he does not say so that it will be prosperous with you or whatever is because by the time we are reading this, we're already supposed to be figuring out what he's talking about, what's actually going on in the background. What is the bigger picture? Okay? Verse 11 says, You shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. So I've often said that that's a kind of a cultural thing. I've heard this quoted many times, and we live in a day where materials are often... You know, mix, like you might be right now be wearing a shirt that's 50% cotton and 50% polyester. For example, it's real common that it causes the material to last longer, stay clean, not wear out as easily, whatever. All these, it be lighter maybe so you don't sweat as much, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, well, that was pretty cultural for them. And now I'm realizing 
It's really not about the two materials at all, is it? But he doesn't say, so it'll be long and you'll prosper in the land or it'll all go well with you or anything like that. Again, I submit to you that the reason he doesn't say that is because by now we're already supposed to be figuring it out. What is the hidden message here? What is the point, the grander teaching that you shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together? And then finally, verse 12, you shall make, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. And the tassels, we already kind of know, if you know your Bible history a little bit, has to do with the Word of God. And so it was to forever keep the Word of God in front of them that they would have the tassels on their garments. So always remember, you can't do anything unless you do it in God. Do it God's way, right? That's what the tassels are about. And so I submit to you that in verse 12, where he's saying make it about the Word, he's giving us the conclusion of what is considered a number of sundry commands. I mentioned this last week. A sundry command... In fact, if you go back, if you're in a New American Standard Bible, you go back to the beginning of chapter 22, you'll see that it labels all of the commands of chapter 22 as sundry commands. Does anybody remember what I said sundry means? Does anybody know the definition off the top of your head? Okay, so sundry means a collection of commands that seem unrelated. I submit to you that after studying this, I've now discovered they're not unrelated at all. Do you see it? Do you already see it even before I begin talking about it? It's there, isn't it? You can see that there's a thread that runs through them all. There's a reason why they're collected here. The sermon has just two points in it and then a conclusion. And as you well know, that means it's a whopper. The conclusion is a whopper. All right? So first of all, the first point I want you to see in here that really the Lord pressed on me is that we are part of, God's people are part of, a grand plan and a greater system. When scientists look into things in science, they look at the cells, they look at um, the little amoeba that has all these intricate parts, but it's a single-cell organism, so it can't possibly have evolved up from anything else. Their ultimate conclusion is that there is an intelligent designer, right? Most scientists who really look at it openly, in fact, statistics say that probably over 60-70% of scientists have now concluded there must have been an intelligent designer, Because there are too many things in creation, when you look at them on a microscopic level, that prove that some intelligent being had to have put it together. If nothing else, DNA proves that, because DNA is essentially language that tells a cell how to replicate itself. And when the cell replicates itself, it replicates the exact same DNA in the new cell. It splits it in half, becomes two, now you've got the same DNA in the new cell. By the way, you know what it's called when that doesn't happen? When the DNA that's replicated is bad, and it's not an exact copy of the original? It's called cancer. Okay? So we're living in a day where we now are aware that over the the history of mankind, we've developed a possibility of cells not properly replicating themselves, and those cells become cancer cells because then they can replicate themselves. But if a liver cell replicates itself to be anything but a liver cell, then when those cells replicate and become millions, you've got a lump. And if they're capable of continuing to grow, then you have what's called malignant cancer. Okay? And I submit to you that we have a malignant cancer in the world today. Inside the world system, the grand plan of God, we have a malignant cancer. This grand plan, great system of God that we have, it is, inside that, it is not providence liberally applied that we are called to. So in other words, you don't just to get to go throughout your life and every opportunity that comes up, suck the greatness out of it. Pull into yourself every bit of wealth you can get. Pull into yourself every bit of profit from every circumstance, right? So I like flea markets and garage sales, 
and I'm teaching Ariana as she's growing up, as I've done with most of my kids to go to flea markets and garage sales. And I told her yesterday as we're walking around the garage sales at the Old West End Festival, and I said, the two rules still apply. Jason, have I ever told you what the two rules of flea markets and garage sales are? I think I probably have, but it's only been one time, and it's been a long time ago, so it's hard to remember. The first rule is you don't have to buy something just because you see it. Okay? And it's the same here. It's not providence liberally. You don't go along, and just because you can collect something, just because you can buy something, doesn't mean you have to. You don't have to have the best thing, the newest thing, right? You, just because your cell phone company says you can upgrade your cell phone, doesn't mean you have to upgrade your cell phone. Just because you see it, doesn't mean you have to buy it. And you first ought to determine whether it's appropriate to do so. Okay. So it's not just providence liberally applied, like we're going around taking whatever we see that we can take. Just because you find a nest with eggs and a bird doesn't mean you take the eggs and the bird, right? You have to ask yourself, is it appropriate that I add this thing to myself, that I take it? It's not just providence liberally applied. The second rule of flea markets and garage sales is you don't have to, whatever price is marked on it, that doesn't mean that's the price you have to pay. Somebody says they want $3, you can offer them too. And if they don't take it, you can come up to three and buy it for what they ask for, or you can decline and walk away. Right? What's more, if you offer them you, something that's lower, you should offer them a fair price as a Christian. The world doesn't necessarily do it that way, but something is being sold for 20 bucks, and you go, well, it's really, to me, it's worth about 15. You can offer 15. If they decline, you can then decide, well, is it really worth 20 not to have to go somewhere else and buy it or whatever, or is it still only worth the 15? But if you know it's worth 15 to you and you offer 10, that's, it. that's disrespectful. That's providence liberally applied. Here I am. You got this. You're stuck with it. I'm going to capitalize on your need to get rid of it. I'm going to try to pay you way less than it's worth. That is not how Christians should behave. Just the same as in all of these texts, we, all of these are about not being put out, not being spent to do what's right. And he's saying, no. Do what's right, because this grand plan of God, this greater system that we're a part of, is not first and foremost about providence liberally applied. In fact, it'll cost you something to live this way. Also, it's not about liberality that was bought at a dear price now being free, right? We live in a nation that we call free, but let's be truly honest. Are you free to do anything you want in the United States of America? No, because you're part of a society. So if you go murder people, you're going to pay a, dear, pay a dear price. And by the way, the first thing that Americans take away from you, if you commit a crime, is what? Your freedom. That's the first thing they take. Because clearly, you were not able to handle it. When, when our, Alicia was in third grade and we were up in Michigan, she would get out of bed every morning. She had laid her clothes out the night before. She would dress herself. This is going to crack you up in a minute, Alicia. She would dress herself. She would make sure her lunch was packed, make sure her homework was done. She would do all of that and make the bus on time. Every day. 180-day school year, I didn't have to get out of bed before 8.30 if I didn't want to. This is what happened. I got out of bed a lot of days just so I could either A, see that phenomenon, or B, spend a little time with her before she went to the bus. I didn't have to get out of bed to make sure her lunch was packed, to make sure her homework was done, to make sure her clothes were on. I didn't have to do any of that. So I got the opportunity then, providentially, because of her dependability, I got the opportunity to just get up to just spend time with her. See where this is going? 
This grand plan and great system of God is not just providence liberally applied, and it's not just liberality bought at a dear price. It's not just whatever my eye sees and my heart wants, I take it. That is not what it means to be a follower of God or even to be a human being. And I get it that that's a whole other topic, but right now I'm talking about what it means to be a follower of God. It's not just I see something, I want something, and I take it. My heart wants it. I don't know if I'll be okay if I don't have it. That is not being a member of the kingdom of God. In fact, David, who was called a man after God's own heart, wrote one of the shortest psalms, not the shortest, I don't think, but one of the shortest, in the book of Psalms, and it's Psalm 131. If you're following along in your Bibles, you can go there with me to Psalm 131. I'm going to read it. It's only three verses long, so if you don't flip quickly, I may be done by the time you get there. Psalm 131, and this is what David wrote. He said, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Nor do I involve myself in great matters. In other words, there's a lot going on, and I'm not trying to be in the middle of it, right? Or in things that are too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Notice, he has composed and quieted his soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. And then he ends on this thought. He said, O oh, Israel, that's the people of God, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forever. I submit to you that if you are walking along the road and you see a bird on its nest and there's eggs therein and you take the eggs and you take the bird too, you're not trusting in the Lord for your providence. You're not trusting in the Lord for the next meal. You're just taking what's been given to you and also going so far as at best you forced his hand to do even more to take care of you later. It's not providence liberally applied. I take anything I want, any opportunity I get. It's not liberality bought at a dear price and I can do whatever I want. It's not whatever my eye sees and my heart wants. I take it or I go after it. Rather, it is a journey learning to be dependent upon the Lord. You are not strong enough to stand if God does not will it. You are not strong enough to lift it if God doesn't will it. You are not strong enough to comprehend it if God does not will it. And the journey, the grand plan of God is that all creation would be delivering this message that we were not created to be independent, we were created to have a relationship of dependency upon God. And these sundry laws, one after another, are reminders that we are meant to be depending on Him daily. The second thing that comes out of these texts, these verses that we've been reading then, that I can, and it makes me happy, are not legitimate motivators. We went to the Old Weston Festival yesterday afternoon, as I mentioned to you, and we were driving around looking for a place to park, and we came along a back street. So I don't know what the cross street is, but it was on the corner of Scottwood, where it might have actually been Scottwood, because it curves there sharply on a 90-degree turn. But I think Scottwood continues on the other side, so I don't know what this street was. We're driving down that street, and they had marked with signs. It was a park, parking here sign, or you can park here, and then under the parking here sign was a sign that had been added. It was red and white. And it said, no parking here, June, whatever the dates were, 4th through the 
sixth or whatever, whatever the dates were for the festival, right? And I'm driving along, and there were people, as you can imagine, who had parked there by the red signs. And nobody had a ticket, and nobody had been towed. They were parked there, so clearly they had not been towed away. And we came to the place where there were several open parking spots with a black and white sign that says, you can park here, legal city sign. But under it was another sign in red and white that says, you cannot park here. And we were discussing, Sherry and I and Ariana in the car, talking about whether or not we can park there. And we saw the black and white sign first. Oh, we can park there. Then we saw the red and white sign. No, you can't park there. And I said, well, I mean, we could park there because there's cars parked there. People are parking there. Nobody's getting a ticket. Nobody's getting towed. So we could park there. Plenty of room. And I had previously seen one parking spot that was about six inches longer than my van on both sides. And I had tried to convince Sherry that I could put the van in that spot. And she told me, don't try it. And so I didn't. And so now we've got all these parking spots sitting here with a sign that says you can park and a sign that says you can't park. And I said, well, we can park there. And Ariana said to me, sweet as she is, why don't we just park there? And I said to her, I said, Ariana, sometimes when you can do something, that's just not a good enough reason to do it. At another time, a few years ago, we went to the Old West End Festival, same festival, different road, and there was a black and white sign that says, do not park there. And I pulled up and parked right next to it, and I didn't get a ticket, and I didn't get towed. And I would forget which one of the kids, I think it might have been Caleb, was with us. We were going to the OS, and he said, why are we parking here if it says you can't park there? And I said, because we can and because we want to. See the difference in three years? Me. I said, because we can and because we want to. Listen to me. Because you can and because you want to, clearly, based on these texts, are not a good enough reason for you to proceed. That's going to be a problem. Because your two primary motivators in life are going to be what you can do and what you want to do. That's what a human, that's the road that we walk, right? If you can't do it, if you truly can't do it, you can't do it. If you believe you can't do it, you probably can't do it and you won't do it. If you want to do it, you'll do it. And if you really don't want to do it, you'll try everything you can not to do it. So the road that we walk is composed largely of we can and we want to. The want to could be it makes me happy, it makes me wealthy, it makes me strong, it saves me time, etc., etc. Paul wrote in the book of 1 Timothy, if you'll go there with me, if you want to anyway, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he said this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So first of all, understand, everybody in this room, you're going to say, oh, I don't really feel it, okay? Everybody in this room is wealthy by the standards of this verse. And unless you literally have no income whatsoever, in the United States of America, not... 95% of the world's population makes less than people in the U.S. who are on Social Security disability. You understand? So you really want to feel wealthy, you'd probably have to move to another country, but you're going to give up a lot to do that, including that income, because they don't pay Social Security disability in another nation. right? So the point is, 
We're all in this category, so that makes this a command for us. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. In other words, don't think you're more than you are, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that you're going to do well if you can just get a little more money, or or you've got enough money to take care of this, uh, and so on. But rather, to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things, look at that, to enjoy. Everything that is in your life, including the hard work, the struggle, the lack, the tribulations, everything that is in your life, good, bad, and ugly, is given for you to enjoy. And God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Then it says in 18, instruct them, as if he were saying, rather, do this. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The message that is behind these sundry verses is nothing less than God has a grand plan to take care of you in a way that you cannot fathom. Which means when you say, I can, you have to go, wait a minute, I think I can, but should I? And when you say, I want, sometimes the answer is actually, I think I want it, but now I realize I don't. Years ago, uh, 22 years ago now, I I stopped drinking soda. I realized I was drinking a lot of soda, a lot. Like I had given up caffeine, so it wasn't about the caffeine. I'd given that up years before. I stopped drinking soda for 40 days because I knew I was out of control. I was drinking about a two liter and a half of soda a day, usually Sprite, root beer, red cream soda, that kind of thing. Two and, uh, uh, three liters a day. And I'm like, that's too much. We were doing purpose-driven life, and I need to give something up, so I'm going to do that because I'm going to get that under control. After 40 days of not drinking soda, except for, I think, twice, once I accidentally picked up somebody's cup, and I did spit it out, and the other time I got handed what I thought was uh, water, and it turned out to be Sprite, and I did spit it out. So twice I drank, and I may have swallowed a teeny little bit. But other than that, after 40 days of not swallowing anything, I said, I'm going to get me a soda. <laughs> And the Lord said, you don't need that. And I said, no, no, no. I, you know, I know I don't need it. I mean, nobody needs soda. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you're in the desert and you're really thirsty. What you need is water, right? Not soda. I mean, nobody needs soda. And God said, and I said, I don't need it, but I want it. And in my mind, I'm thinking I want it and I can have it because it's been 40 days. And God said, no, actually, you don't. And I'm like, but I feel like I do. And God said, but you don't. And now, 22 years later, I still haven't drunk soda. Now, when I moved to Michigan, just to give you an example, when I moved to Michigan after I had been diagnosed with the, the ability to get dehydrated, and by the way, soda will dehydrate you almost worse than anything, right? But I had been diagnosed with this problem that caused me to get dehydrated easily. I might have been dead, right? I certainly had a lot more kidney stones if I had continued drinking, but I didn't know anything about that. Afterwards, the doctor told me to start drinking Gatorade. While I was living in Michigan, drinking Gatorade, mostly instead of water, because if I drink the Gatorade, I only drink half a gallon a day, but if I drink water, I've got to drink three quarters of a gallon a day to stay hydrated. That's what the doctor told me. So while I was drinking three quarters of a gallon of Gatorade a day, I gained 45 pounds. 45 pounds in nine months. At which point in time I said, wait a minute, I think I know what the problem is. And I started drinking the three quarters of a gallon of water a day instead of the Gatorade. And over two years, I lost about 30 to 35 of those 45 pounds. And then it took me 15 
or plus 15 plus years to lose the last 10. Now I want you to think about where I'd have been if for that intervening 15 years I'd have been drinking soda. But the day that God said, you don't want that, I was thinking, but, but yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, I do, God. I do want it. And God's like, no, you don't want it. And what God could see was that if I had continued on the path that I was on, he could see the results that I was going to get. I didn't know why. I didn't get to ask God why. I probably did ask him why sometimes, but he never answered me why. Right? Sometimes I can and I want are not proper motivators. Until your heart is properly aligned like Psalm 131, like what David is talking about, and you're dependent upon the Lord, then your I want becomes what God wants. Like a weaned child. Mama says, look, you can't be on the boob forever. You're done. It's time to stop breastfeeding and start eating solid food and drinking from a cup. And the baby's like, no, please, no. Please don't take my boob. This is my best friend. This is my everything. But Mama knows better. And like a weaned child, I realize mama knows better. And my soul within me becomes like a weaned child, and I realize God knows better. His grand system, his grand plan, and his great system is not just for me about providentially, liberally applying whatever opportunities I get to take what I want. It is not about my liberality acting in freedom. A dear price was paid for that, and I need to respect that. It's not just whatever my eyes see or whatever my heart wants, I go after it. It's about training my eyes, my physical human eyes, and my heart, my internal being, to want what God wants. And first of all, then, to want God. And then that brings us to our conclusion. Before I do that, I want to mention this, because we may not get there otherwise. There's a three-part action plan in being a follower of Jesus, and you probably know what it is. And the first one is deny yourself. And I submit to you, if you're living your life, taking what you can and going after what you want, you are not denying yourself. Now, for the conclusion. We live in a day today. We live in a day. Perhaps it's always been this way, all the way back to Adam and Eve, where men are not only inclined to do that which goes against God, and against God's good plan, and against his system, but also they rejoice when others do the same things. Paul wrote about these circumstances in the book of Romans. And if you want to read them, you can, but I'm just going to read the two verses to you today. They're from Romans 1, they are 28 and 32, if you're taking notes. And it says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then a few verses in 32, he says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There is a section, if you will, of mankind that not only wants to do what goes against God's grand plan and his great system and against God himself, but also is very pleased when others do the same. We're living in a day where you have to take a choice. You have to make a choice of whether to be a part of that group of people or whether to be a part of a group of people that truly wishes to honor God with their choices and live as a people of grace and love and service. And so on. That difficult choice puts us in a very difficult position. 
Because if we choose to be a people of grace and love, and yet we know there are people out there like this other, what do we do about that? Do we become the enforcers of God and buy arms and, and move to the country and put barbed wire up on our fences to keep them out? Do we become recluse and monks and live on a mountain somewhere and learn the Gregorian chants and learn the scriptures and only live as godly people because we can't let those infidels in here to use a term from another faith (laughs) what do we do the beauty of it is that scripture clearly shows us what to do now that we have seen in Deuteronomy 22 that there is a grand plan of God a great system in place and we desire to function within it and not to abuse it not to live the way we've been taught not to We can find in the same scriptures the plan on how to handle it, this difficulty. The first and simplest would be to look at Romans chapter 1. Remember those verses that we just read? Romans 1, 28 and 32, where Paul was pointing out that there is a group of people, and he kind of described them in fairly harsh terms, and I didn't get into all of it, but you heard that they are a people that want to do what's not God's way, and they want others to do it as well. They are pleased when others do it as well. All of that is subject to the beginning of the discussion, which is earlier in chapter 1. And that section that includes 28 and 32 is summed up as this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul was saying, this is what you do. Living in a world divided between these two standards. One that recognizes that God has a great plan and a grand system. And wants to submit to it and be saved through Jesus Christ, which is part of that great plan. And another that wants to do the opposite of what God wants, to capitalize and take advantage of providential liberality of every kind and see others do the same, when stuck between those two worlds, this is what you do. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed, for in it is the power unto salvation for you, but not just for you, For everyone else who is living over there, if you will, if you want to use it geographically, living over there, who would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who would truly say, I am not here to capitalize on the system. I am not here to providentially, liberally apply my own freedom. Rather, I am here to recognize that God has a plan and that he has enacted that plan through his son, Jesus Christ, and they will be transported, transmuted, moved, from this section to this section. It's painful because it's not geographical. But the bridge is the truth and the truth is Jesus. Secondly, in this day, we must remember these commands in Deuteronomy 22 were written to a people who had already received God's grace. They'd received God's grace in being brought out of Egypt and led and through the Red Sea and protected and provided for in battle. 
They had already been preserved by God. As painful as it is to say, those on the road to hell can dress however they please. They can consume however they please. They can overuse the system however they please and get no worse eternal damnation than that which is already prepared for them. However, if at some point they may get truly saved, they can take that eternal damnation off the table. And let us be careful that tax collectors and whoremongers do not come down, come and sit down in the kingdom of God before we do. For just as we preach, we understand there is a greater plan. We understand there is a greater system and we want to be part of it through Jesus Christ. We must indeed actually be part of it. We cannot just mouth the words or act the actions without having a transformed heart submitted to the Lord. For if we do that, there is every possibility that somebody who now, somebody who now rapes the system, steals for their own enjoyment, behaves in a way that dishonors God, may actually meet Christ and become a Christian and go to heaven. While we do not. That salvation is in the reminder. That holiness of God. That separation of peoples. It's in the cloths. No two cloths together. For this reason Paul would say it's inappropriate to marry unequally yoked. But so is it true that if you partner with an unbeliever you are unequally yoked. If you participate in raping the system, reaping the benefits of God's gift beyond what is actually allowed, so too you are like a donkey in the yoke. Or perhaps an ox and someone else that loves Jesus is a donkey. And here in this text... We are reminded not to try to lay two kinds of seed in the same field. What soil are you? There is only one seed. It is the Word of God. I know people who will read self, claim to be a Christian and read a self-help book or a fantasy sci-fi book or a history book, but they won't pick up and read their Bible. Your heart is one field made for one seed, and that seed is the Word of God. And if you will pollute yourself with everything else in the world, but not purify yourself by inserting in everything about Jesus, then you defile everything that comes off of that field. All the fruit is defiled. You say, but I love Jesus, and I read my Bible, but yeah, I watch that stuff too. I love Jesus, I read my Bible, but yeah, I participate in that stuff too. And you take it in, and you defile not only the fruit that is produced by the stuff that is defiled, but also the fruit that is produced by Jesus in your heart. You defile it all. I didn't put it there. I submit to you, Moses didn't even put it there. This is an understanding of what the God of the universe says about what it means to be a part of a distinct, unique, already covered by grace kingdom of God. And let us not forget the tassels. The tassels on the garments. That we will put on the edge of our garments to always remember wherever we go that the most important way to live 
is by doctrine. It's by the teachings of the Lord. It's so important what God tells us to do that Jesus would eventually say this. You know, a number of centuries after Moses said what we wrote today, Jesus would say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who follows the commands of my Father. See, God's commands are the guidelines. They are the framework. They are the rails. They are the pillars. They are the supports, the archways upon which God's grand design exists. You must follow the Lord. You must desire him above all things and follow his commands above all things. And if you find in your heart a competition between something that you have absorbed and God's word, then get rid of that other something and make it about God's word. If you are a person who cannot watch TV without watching smut, then don't watch TV. Read the Word instead. What will it hurt you? You can even, if you need to, if you really need a dose of darkness, you can read a little Song of Solomon or some imprecatory psalms where they're praying that God would bash the baby's heads upon the rocks. You say, oh, I don't need to read that, but you still watch the TV, mature TV, or the rated R crap, or listen to people talking on the radio full of foul language. We are a different people, a unique and holy people. We must put the gospel up where the gospel belongs. And then we also must remember that these commands, they are for us if you are a follower of Jesus. We want to liberally apply them to the rest of the world, those who don't want to do what God wants them to do, those who want to see others not do what God wants them to do. We want to apply that there. You'd love, I'd love to haul out Deuteronomy 22.5 and say, you're a boy. You shouldn't be dressing like that. I would love to do that. But guess what? If that person doesn't know Jesus, that text applies to them, but ultimately, eternally, it doesn't hurt them at all to do the wrong thing that they're doing. But if you will capitalize on a situation and go after what you can and what you want rather than what God wants for you, if your heart in you is prideful or your heart in you needs to get up involved with things that you don't necessarily need to be involved with so you can get your way, get your prosperity, get your be looked upon by society a certain way, if you need that, if you need to feel good about you, then you're doing the same thing that they're doing by dressing up the way they shouldn't. And the command then is for you. The third and final point in the conclusion then is this. You do you. That sounds worldly, doesn't it? That sounds like it comes straight out of Satan's system. So you do you. You do what you want to do. You do what you can do. Do what you're capable of. Do your smart thing or do your hard thing or do your financial thing. You do you, right? But God says that in doing us, we are to separate because we have been made new. We are to separate, if necessary, from that which would have us do old us or different us that's not godly. You are to use your resources, he says in 1 Timothy 6, the latter part of that chapter. Use your resources to be a blessing to others. As the last text today, I'll read just a few verses from that, and we are concluding. First Timothy, back to First Timothy six. <clears throat> First Timothy six. We already read seventeen. What do we read? Seventeen. Six, seventeen through twenty-one. We're going back to verse three. I thank God whom I serve. Wrong one. Here it goes. Verse three. 
If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So we say, I can be godly. I want to be godly because it'll be good for me. Verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world so we, can take, we can't take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And I submit to you, you could submit the love of anything that's not godly right there. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see, it's right there in the word. You do you, but if you want to do what's good for you, you better do Jesus first. There is no greater place of suffering than someone who would think their eternal destination is secure while in actuality they are headed for hell. Every day spent thinking they're saved, thinking this is the best that we'll ever get. This lonely, aching heart of mine. This desperate desire for something more. Trying to feel okay. Never quite complete. Thinking they're saved, but never quite there. There is no greater pain, no greater suffering, no greater sorrow than someone who would think that their eternal destination is secure when it's actually not. So what do you do? Well, when it's your evil, repent. Knock it off. Turn to the Lord and do what's right. When it's evil, put under your control. So it's your kids or your money or your whatever and you're the one who can do something about it. When it's evil, put under your control. Repent. Turn to the Lord. End that evil. When it's not your evil, when it's someone else doing themselves, doing what they want to do, and it's not your kid, it's not your house, it's not in your church building, it's not in your ministry, when it's someone else's evil, trust in the Lord and deliver the gospel. The true status quo, status quo means the way things are, the true, the true status quo God's plan and system. The gospel. According to the way God presents it, you deliver the gospel, you fertilize it with the blood of the church, and His plan comes to fruition, 
as everybody who will comes and receives the Lord and is truly saved. Once they come and receive the Lord, the tassels go on their garment. They become about the word of God. They begin to realize they are now part of a bigger system, a bigger plan. They realize they cannot blend themselves together anymore with the world's unholiness. They realize there will always be a group of people who want to stand up against God. They want to do what they're trying to revise the system to allow things to be okay that God says are not. There's always going to be that group of people. But they realize they are no longer a part of it. And then, in Jesus' strength, in Jesus' capabilities, they set aside the I can and the it makes me happy. And they become like a weaned babe on the lap of the Lord. God wants you to do what God wants you to do. God wants you to want to do what God wants you to do. And I understand that sometimes and in certain areas, it starts with a sip of milk. And you go, I'm beginning to get a feeling like something has to change. But if you've become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to say He is your Lord and you do what He says, He is your Savior and He paid the price for your sins, then you're no longer a part of the group that goes around sucking the good out of life liberally applying God's providence and taking whatever they can. You become the guy that goes back to the cash register to pay for the thing that you forgot to pay for. That drives back to the restaurant to deliver the change that was accidentally given too much. That doesn't park where the no parking sign says don't park. That wears their seatbelt, even though I think all of us would agree that shouldn't be a law. And so on. The bottom line is, we don't answer to this world, we answer to God. And He wants you to depend upon Him. Will you? There's no physical tassel on your sleeve. But will the Word of God govern every reaching of your hand? There's no physical tassels on your, we don't even wear robes anymore, but the bottom of your robes like your pant legs, right? But will the word of God govern, govern every step you take? If it won't, then when you stand before Jesus, as God says, you will answer for it. I'm asking you today to realize that these sundry commands, these various things that we know we are supposed to do, they are not at all disconnected. They are a wide open bay window for you to see, for me to see, for us to see the grand plan of God and how it goes beyond what we know and how sometimes we just have to say, well, there's no one on the planet that would say, I can't take this or I can't do this or I shouldn't. But then something in me says no. So I won't. And when you learn to do that, you will be walking by faith, not by sight. And this is what we're called to. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in our closing hymn.